Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Happy Monday night. Got a chance to do at least half of a gamer here. We did these games for the NBA cast, mostly Utah and Philly. That one was a blowout through three quarters. Utah did superficially make it close late, but uh, we switched over then to Phoenix and Charlotte, which was a pretty interesting game to talk about as well. But let's uh, begin here with Utah and Philly. Complete blowout twice in a row now for the Jazz. They got housed Sunday night, trailed 77 to 37 at halftime in Toronto, and were down 62 37 at one point here. No, I'm sorry. I think it was 52 27 at one point with about four minutes left in the first half. They got it back to 18. Philly was still up 20 at the end of three, and they were able to hold on and win it. So I think the thing to take away here for me was just how bad Utah's offense that continues to look yeah i thought there was a good stat from our friend david Locke that this is based on the location effective field goal percentage that uh i mentioned in denver's 15 and 60 about a week ago that utah based just on their location this year they're shooting 52.4 percent effective field goal percentage that's what it would be last year that was 54.3 so they're just taking tougher shots and this game was very emblematic of that i mean so while the jazz were 26 of 38 in their shift area that's a, a strong number of attempts that's a really high make percentage 68 percent they were just in a disaster outside of that disaster on jump shots the first made three they had was mike Conley at the very end of the first half they were zero for their first nine yeah, and I think that might have been one of the few spot-up attempts that they got as well. A lot of off-the-dribble, above-the-breaks. I think they only took two three-pointers in the first quarter. And focusing just on the first half, 12 of 20 at the rim. And then they made a mere five shots away from the basket in that first half and also turned the ball over like crazy, which we'll get to. Philly just did a great job of forcing them into the mid-range. Their defensive shot profile has been outstanding so far this year. Whether it was Embiid at center, I thought he was outstanding around the rim in the first. Al Horford at center. And then Philly was 11 of 19 from three in the first half as well. And I thought the guy who really stood out to me in that first half, enough so that he actually got to start the second half over Furkan Korkmaz, was... Matisse Thibel. Yeah, I mean, Thibel, I, I just admit that I watch games a little bit differently when we're doing the NBA cast because we're so locked in and you're trying to think of interesting insight and all that kind of stuff. And I had a greater appreciation for his defensive performance. I mean, the offensive stuff, yeah, sure. He, he made all three of his three-pointers and had a couple of nice passes, two dribbles in a good decision type stuff as Ben thankfully called the video and tweeted out. But, yeah, but those threes are worth noting before you transition to his sure. defense, which was the big star. On the move, feet not set. Like, 
pretty difficult attempts not the type of attempts that you would expect to see from a guy who's really been struggling from downtown so far this year right and and that's always encouraging rookie years even for older rookies it's about flashes and what could it theoretically be and Thibault's not going to be an on-ball offensive player very often and so if he can develop some of those mechanics look a little bit more steady and and to me he did I also thought Korkmaz looked more comfortable on his three-pointer but I mean Thibault's defense the reason he started the second half was because of how destructive he was and and so remember they started out this game the Sixers with Furkan Korkmaz guarding Mike Conley and Conley didn't have this fast this dominant performance I mean he was three and nine from the field overall six assists and then had four turnovers most of which I think occurred in the second half left left in the second half with uh hamstring tightness correct and and so I thought that was an advantage that Quinn Snyder should have pressed more they're doing a lot of high pick and roll with Boyan Bogdanovich who's been hot recently but didn't have as much of an advantage to press here and instead they went to Thibault and it just short-circuited so much of what the Jazz wanted to do because Thibault is he's everywhere he's a great recovery guy but more importantly he's just in passing lanes and he's stealing live dribbles too yeah it's really remarkable these are NBA players you just don't see these types of plays being made uh, the plays that he makes in the passing lane his ability to get his hands on balls yeah he does commit a, a large number of fouls I've never seen it I've never seen in all my time covering the NBA someone who has his ability to force turnovers and get deflections and we've seen a lot of great players some of them in a Philly uniform Ben Simmons is great at that Robert Covington was one of those guys uh, when he played for Philly but Thibel you just it's like every third possession he's getting his hand on a ball and he's doing it out of nowhere yeah every once in a while he'll give something up with his gambling he's also one of the best rear view contest guys in the league getting over screens uh, they put him on Mitchell Mitchell uh, struggled to a miserable night uh, being guarded by Ben Simmons uh, and Thibel so it, it was I mean I continue to be incredibly impressed and this is the team with Thibel where they don't have anybody with the strength who's really going to be able to bother him and they for whatever reason just have not had a ton of spacing so far this year it just hasn't really been working for them and so he just absolutely wreaked havoc with their offense it was about as good of a performance as you're going to see on a per minute basis from a wing and so the full season stats just for those who are interested deflections per 36 minutes because it's fair to scale this by minutes played the the NBA does not do it by possession count Thibault is fifth in the league narrowly behind Nerlens Noel Chris Dunn and then DeJounte Murray and Drew Holiday are tied for number one but remember he's a true rookie you know like it is a little bit different it, to to see how aggressively he's doing it and in, in a bench capacity I, I'm really impressed by that and just how disruptive I mean and perimeter players aren't usually this disruptive like even the guys who do it well sometimes it's you know you you see them most because the guy's not showing out like the Drew Holiday's had games like that before and Mark Smart has too and I mean they both have hustle plays they're both fantastic defenders but Thibel you notice him in a good way more often and and maybe for most guys that kind of gamble I mean I covered Monte Ellis for a while like those that part of gambles can be bad but Thibel it doesn't seem like he's gambling that often compared to those type of guys yeah and his minutes have increased lately didn't play at all in that Toronto game last week but he only played three minutes but then he had a three of three from downtown in their victory over Sacramento three of three tonight from downtown so he has been heating up a little bit certainly not exactly the highest usage rate in the world in fact prior to that Toronto game he shot one or fewer three-pointers for 
10 consecutive games, some of which he was playing, you know, 10 minutes a game, five minutes a game, but still uh, he'd been in and out of the rotation, but looks like he's back in, especially obviously with Josh Richardson out tonight with his own uh, recurring hamstring issues that that we talked about on yesterday's program for Utah. I mean, yeah, they only got 22 three-pointers. That's terrible. Only one make in the first half. Their shooters just were way off. Bogdanovich, I think, did he have three three-point attempts in this game that didn't even hit the rim? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. I think he had two that just hit backboard and one that straight up airballed. Yeah, and certainly the Philly's length was bothering him. Rudy Gobert did have a fantastic offensive game. He had 27. Donovan Mitchell, usually very motivated to go against Philly, struggled to 18 points on six of 19. And just other than a couple of drives to the rim when Embiid was out of the game, was really just able to get nothing at the basket. And And he also turned the ball over four times compared to only one assist. So he wasn't really, and he wasn't really creating. There were a few potential Donovan assists that were missed by teammates, you know, those sorts of plays. But he just didn't create that much for me for other people. And also Philly did such a good job contesting basically everything he took or making it so the only uncontested things he had were these really ambitious pull-up threes where it wasn't you know it wasn't really in rhythm or anything like that he I don't recall any of his six being of the catch and shoot Friday I think one was but it was like a really really deep one. Oh, that, that I think might be that's right the yeah. one that he made early in the third but yeah the the quality and quantity of the jazz three-point looks was really really bad and ed davis is back now he didn't really have much of an impact in this one zero offensive rebound zero points one shot attempt he uh, was overwhelmed by Embiid physically they did a nice job of fronting at times with him out there but he, he's too thin to take on Embiid Dante Exum is back now too he had almost no impact whatsoever I haven't seen the type of defensive activity from him that we've come to really like and yeah they're trying to work it back into the rotation after that partially torn patellar tendon but he did not look to be the same type of difference maker as an athlete not to mention the fact that he was passing up shots from three-point range as well Moutier was wasn't in the rotation in the first half he came in just because Conley was out in the second half so the, their bench problems continued they did get a little something out of George and Yang but that was really after the game had already been decided I also thought Ben Simmons had one of his better efforts with 14 points and nine assists team best plus 19 he was out there when they made their big run middle of the second quarter as the Jazz just couldn't score Simmons was any type of turnover or miss really pushing it down their throats and he did struggle to over for four from the free throw line his avoidance of contact inside again uh, was pretty obvious in this game but I, I thought other than that he was really able to make such a difference in transition this was the type of game where they're forcing a lot of turnovers he's really able to make his presence felt and something and that he was... had four steals of his own as philly had 12 in this game so sorry i was going to mention something else that was that was interesting and why I, my theory of why ben simmons should push the ball as basically as hard as he can as often as he can including running after makes is i love the cleaning glass does this filter half court offense jazz and sixers pretty close you know at- 0.88 points per possession for the Sixers, 0.84 for the Jazz. That's, you know, within the realm. But the Sixers were way more effective in transition. That was actually more important. Some of that was the Jazz missing shots. And their frequency, you know, I, they they were able to play about the same amount in transition. So, I mean, and I think that was also skewed by some late game stuff. So Simmons creating those extra opportunities. The Sixers aren't a great half-court offense. So if Simmons can create more transition opportunities, that's there. Also, Al Horford had a really nice offensive performance, particularly in the first 
first half, was three of three on threes, was able to take advantage, you know, not being guarded by Gobert as much, I think really did help him out. Yeah, there was one possession where he tried to go, but I mean, every sixer tried like one or two possessions to go after Rudy Gobert and none of them went well. And Horford, you know, kind of in that realm, but I thought he did a really nice job overall. So he and Thibel combining for six of six from three. And then, you know, there was a, a little moment where James Ennis was feeling his jump shot. I think he hit two three-pointers and then he tried that crazy pull-up, that like one-legged pull-up free throw shot, but he ended up two for 10 from the field. And I, yeah, but I just thought overall, like one of my big takeaways from this is the Sixers, def- even without Josh Richardson, the Sixers have a ton of just really capable defenders and Embiid overall looked great defensively. The, the scheme worked really well. And for the Jazz, my the part of the reason I didn't put them in the title, you know, the title contender category, you know, more like where the Nuggets were, where like, they're a good team, they're a very good regular season team, but I don't think they're going to win championship is, can they create against really good defensive teams? And in this game, some of it was, you know, going 5 of 22 from 3, but they're not creating enough really reliable, positive offense, whether even if the shots are falling better than they were in this game, that gets back to that David Locke stat I started the broadcast out with. They're not creating enough to do that against the average team, much less when you sample out, when you when you cull the best defenders that teams like the Clippers and the Sixers and the Bucks and a lot of these teams just they have because that's what makes a great team great couple other notes uh, on this game tobias harris was the sixers only reliable source of offense in the second half 35 minutes 26 points but it was 10 out of 23 to get there and it's going to be tough for him to be efficient especially when richardson is out he's really their only guy who can create something in the half court but that's going to be a mid-ranger he doesn't put pressure on the rim they also don't have the shooting around him in fact because he pulls up for the mid-ranger a lot with Embiid and Simmons out there with him that's almost more reliable offense than if he was trying to get to the basket just because their spacing is pretty limited when he's trying to to operate but he performs an important role of taking some of the hardest half-court shots and, and he at least did that competently tonight you mentioned Embiid 30 minutes they are trying to keep his minutes down he had 16 points but he was only five out of 13 from the field five fouls as well including a couple of kind of dumb ones and what occurred to me is that Embiid has the biggest difference in the league of any star between being defended by bad defenders and good defenders part of that is his own problem part of that is the Sixers overall problem the issue for him is he doesn't really have the option of for example LeBron James oh you're being guarded by someone who can actually stand up to you physically well now we're just going to have you we're going to put the ball in your hands we're going to have you run a pick and roll at the other team's point guard and give you an advantage that way or we're going to have you run a pick and roll out top get a screen and now you can attack downhill draw to make things happen for a center if your matchup can guard you and not many can but Rudy Gobert can Marcus Gasol can obviously he had that massive struggle against him Al Horford we saw in the playoffs a few years ago when Embiid is being guarded by someone who can match him physically and I thought Gobert really made him look bad on a couple of his post-up attempts tonight there's not really another option for him to go to last year they had that JJ Redick handoff game that could get him some easy buckets they don't have that anymore now they can't run pick and roll at all because they don't have the spacing they don't really have the ball handlers to get him moving there he's not really a great pick and roll player or pick and pop player he doesn't really do a ton on the offensive glass that's something i always wish that he could maybe do a little bit more of at his size 
And so if he can't just beat his guy and score reliably and force double teams, all of a sudden it really drops off for him. And he's not going to be your source of reliable offense when he can't just, and they could run a few plays for him every now and again to try and get him a deep post up or something, but those don't work as well as just putting the ball in your best player's hands and letting him run a pick and roll. Like they do, he doesn't have that option. And so, it, and he doesn't have the versatility of scoring of say someone like Towns. You can't run every through, everything through him at the elbow like Jokic when he's running well. So if you have that guy on Embiid, Philly is now going to really struggle. I mean, Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson as your primary half court creators. If Embiid is taken out of the game, like that's just not good enough. And so I do think Philly remains very dangerous because it's going to be so difficult to blow them out with this defense that they have. And I think they're going to make any series, any series that they do go down, they're going to go down really hard. And it's going to be a slog for the opponent, just like we saw last year against Toronto. But that is a major weakness that Embiid has right now. I'll echo that, but I want to add in one other important thing, which is Embiid is a wonderful free throw shooter, but he has to actually get to the free throw line. And players like Gobert and Marcus Gasol don't generally create as many of those opportunities either. Yeah, and, he relies a lot on the bullshit foul drawing for his efficiency. Right. And something else I wanted to mention about this game, there were a few little wrinkles that we saw from Ben Simmons that I liked. You, you brought up the pushing after makes. Also, they ran a beautiful fake DHO, which is... you. So basically what I would say to Brett Brown is, look at everything the Warriors do for Draymond Green, who also is not a reliable shooter, and like the ways that he can get kind of system-y buckets when the defense isn't paying attention. The, the Sixers should do all of those things because Simmons has great passing ability. He, he you know, we, we've talked about his his issues in terms of how shooting will affect his half-court offense, but there are little tricks that I think the Sixers can go to more often, even if they don't have the spacing that the best Warriors teams have had. Well, if you're feeling that there's a lot of spacing in your wallet this year, maybe you should give yourself the gift of some extra money in your pocket, pay off your credit card balances, and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. There was a time when I had a lot of high-interest credit card payments, so Lightstream would have been great for me at, at that point. It'll roll your high-interest credit card payments into just one payment at a lower fixed rate. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates as low as 5.95% APR. With their auto pay, you can save thousands in interest and there are absolutely no fees, no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties. The application is so quick and easy, you can apply it right from your phone. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash capspace, easier enough slash capspace, because we talk about it all the time here on the program. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com, lightstream.com slash capspace. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash capspace for more information. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. So we started focusing in on this Phoenix-Charlotte game. In the fourth quarter, Phoenix had led it by 20 in the first half. Charlotte came roaring back on the strength of a great game from Marvin Williams, who had 22 points on only eight shots. 10 of 10 from the foul line. You looked it up. I tried to guess how long it had been since he'd had 10 free throw attempts in a game. And what was it like 2012 when he was still on the Hawks? April of 2012. And the one before that was in, I think, mid 2011. You know, so it had been a while since then. And yeah, I mean, to to put a finer point on it, when, when the fourth quarter started, we picked it up a little bit into the fourth quarter. The Suns had a seven point lead and they lost that seven point lead on a 15 to four, just the fourth quarter portion of that horse 
Hornets run. Marvin had a, had a few nice baskets. They also got some offense from, I believe, Devontae Graham had some. Dwayne Bacon had a few layups in there. And then, you know, the, the Hornets were, you know, it was nip and tuck for most of the way, but I don't think the Hornets ever really trailed by more than a point or two. And then they build out this, you know, I think it was a six point, seven point lead after Marvin Williams got fouled on a three point shooting foul. And so, yeah, it was three minutes to three and a half minutes to go. And the Hornets are up seven. Even before what happened next, you're like, okay, if you have a seven point lead with three and a half minutes to go, as long as you do like competently well, you should have a pretty good chance, much less what happened in the final minute. Yeah, we can talk a little bit more about the meat of this game. Devin Booker is really interesting. Only 15 field goal attempts, 10 of which were three pointers. Charlotte went to Dwayne Bacon to guard him with his size. Bacon lost his starting position to Devontae Graham, who didn't shoot it well, one of 10 from three, but had 13 assists at 15 points in this one. But Bacon is really the only Hornet with any type of size. Nick Batum had a sore hand and wasn't able to continue. Also, I thought it was interesting that they started Biombo and played him at the end over Cody Zeller. For Phoenix, Aaron Baines made a triumphant return with 17 points over the weekend and then immediately suffered a calf injury. He was out a left calf strain is what they're calling it you imagine that if he had to miss a game with the calf strain that's gonna be another week or so at least for him after missing five games they've really struggled without him frank kaminsky and we saw him just get scored on at the rim over and over again another 0 for 4 from three he's struggled from three nearly all season and 33 minutes for him starting at center they just again don't have anyone else ty jerome made his debut had four points and four assists uh, uh, some nice passes in uh his 12 minutes uh, he played over tyler johnson and uh elia kobo Ricky Rubio had nine points and 13 assists, but man, was his jumper off in this game, especially in the fourth quarter. But he did also have, I think, like four backdoor dimes just in the fourth quarter alone, which was pretty impressive. What do you make, Danny, of Booker's usage being down so much this year? Is that is that optimal for this team? I mean, his efficiency has been outstanding, but you know, 15 shots in a game like this where, yeah, they did come back and win, perhaps in lucky fashion, as we'll talk about. But uh, in the fourth quarter, he didn't get a single shot that was really a part of the primary action. Yeah, it, it's it's a challenge. I mean, Booker last year made some real strides as a as a playmaker, as a creator for others. But one of the big challenges, despite Rubio having some moments as a shooter at various points in his career, including I believe some at the beginning of this year, he is a lot less valuable with the ball out of his hands because he's not a great passer. In this game, it was zero for five from from shooting. But also, it's the the harder to quantify factor that he's just not as respected of a shooter. So if that guy can help out a little bit more, it's not as extreme as Ben Simmons or a few other guys. But it creates creates real challenges. That was a part of why I was critical of the decision to not only sign Rubio, but pay him the money they did, even though having a competent passer has had all these other spillover benefits. And I've been, I understated the positives that Rubio bring. But for Booker, yeah, I mean, there, it's an interesting question. So last year, 58% true shooting on 33% usage with a 34% assist rate. This year, as you said, higher 63% true shooting, 28% usage, and a 30% assist rate. So it's more effective, but a smaller part of the offense. And I, you know, all things equal, I think I would actually like to see Booker have a little bit more playmaking responsibility. He is a, a load to cover. And the biggest part of why I would support that is when we were watching that fourth quarter and when I've been watching the Suns otherwise too, it's not like when Devin Booker is off ball, they're treating like the Suns, Monty Williams, 
Williams, everything else, as great a job as Monty Williams, I think, is doing with this team, they're not treating him like J.J. Redick or Clay Thompson or one, one of these really good off-screen guys where you're, or even like, let's say, Wayne Ellington, where you're running a lot of stuff for them. When Booker is off-ball, he's not doing a whole heck of a lot. And so then you're losing the benefit of, of him entirely, or at least almost entirely, except for some of those cuts. Yeah, and I think maybe when Aiton is back, we'll see those two guys working together. When Baines is out there and is hitting shots as opposed to Kaminsky, who's not that can open things up but i mean especially in this fourth quarter charlotte's got two point guards out there and they never once ran you know a pick and roll with booker and rubio now maybe that's because you don't have to guard rubio in that situation and but they never tried a post up for devin booker um you know and there are a few plays where he drew two and started uh, swing actions and, and they got three pointers off of him but it, he definitely it didn't feel like he was being featured on a team that is not a great defensive team and it has a, a lot of defensive liabilities um but with rubio not able to shoot off the ball again it kind of makes more sense well you got to put the ball in his hand so he at least gets guarded and then he can set up everyone else he does make the right decisions as a passer they do get more ball movement that way but if Rubio is going to continue to shoot like this, I do think that it's going to limit their offense. Should we talk about the end now? This has got to be a candidate for worst loss. Yeah, in, in unfortunately, well, fortunately for Charlotte, it did not occur in the same month as their collapse against the Chicago Bulls, which in many, they're, they're similarly bad. And they were both at home. And I mean, Hornets over baby is still doing okay, but if one or two of these swing the other way, then it looks even better. I think we should start while, you know, there, there are a few other notable moments from before this. Devontae Graham gets fouled by Sharich with 111 to go, sinks both of those free throws to put the Hornets up 104-97. So they are up seven points with just over a minute to go. Yeah, that was an atrocious foul by Sharich, by the way, with uh, four on the shot clock. They've run the time down and Graham just takes a couple of dribbles and Sharich just gets his forearm on him and and it was a correct call barfs up a shot and goes to the foul line yeah so then i mean i think before we get into it let's just talk about what at any level but especially at the nba level what a team is trying to do in that circumstance so 111 left you're three possessions ahead with two or three depending on if the other team intentionally fouls offensive possessions remaining for the other team one of the things you want to do is you want to make sure that the other team runs as much time as possible and or gets a tough shot because if they're running more time then that's fewer possessions for them but then the other basic part is you want to run as much time as you can while not running like a prevent offense but also making sure that you get a shot up because that creates the possibility of an offense rebound and that you're not committing fouls like those are kind of the three main things make the other team work run the time that you can and make sure that you get something up instead of turning the ball over and the Hornets just manifestly failed at all three of those things in remarkable in remarkable effect and also maybe don't give up a three so it starts off with a drive Kaminsky gets set up I think it was it was Rubio and Terry Rozier was trying to go for the intercept instead runs into Kaminsky who hits the floater on the left baseline so you already messed up there by giving up a potential three-point play but okay not the end of the world Kaminsky misses the free throw gets his own offensive rebound nobody boxed out the shooter came in from the three-point line and got in front of him that's uh, their job and then throws it out to Kelly Oubre who immediately hits a three-pointer Devin Booker with a really nice swing as everyone rotated to him once Kaminsky outlet the ball to the three-point line so they just gave up five points on one possession (laughs) Then they run the time down. Devontae Graham, fantastic pass, 
Bismack Biombo, who actually I thought did some nice things defensively, might have the worst hands of the league. Hits him right in the hands. He could have just dunked it. Instead, drops it, picks it back up, gets blocked by Ubre. Suns, I really was impressed with 33 seconds left. Their level of patience, knowing they're only down two. Booker had a, a couple of plays where he tried to find Kaminsky on the roll. He couldn't. Then he swung it to Ubre, and Ubre left wing this time, hits the three. The Charlotte Hornets gave up eight points in two possessions. It was absolutely incredible. They're down one after two possessions. They had a seven-point lead. And then, of course... Somehow it gets worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. The the inbound was unbelievable. Yeah. So the Hornets, I believe they called, they did one of my, one of my things. They called the timeout. They didn't even like, you know, it isn't the situation yeah. of 19.8 seconds left down one. They call the timeout. They call timeout. Don't try to take advantage of a scrambled defense or anything else. Remember, it's a one point game and. Yeah. They bring in some offensive subs, bring in PJ Washington, but they don't really, it didn't seem like there was really a theory of how they were going to try to get the ball in. And so they got into yeah. the circumstance where I think it, it was Devontae, right? Where Yeah, he just like jogged in. He started in the backcourt. It was like the Bre old Brad Stevens setup. Started in the backcourt, but he just like jogs into the play and Ubre gets his hand in on the DHO with PJ Washington and just knocks it off his leg out of bounds, Phoenix ball. Yeah, and that was coming on the heels of another play. I'd forgotten about this one when he brought up Devontae Graham jogging where they almost got an eight second violation because Devontae Graham just is dribbling the ball up the four and crosses it basically as it hits the eight second and because Kelly Oubre didn't pressure him up I mean Oubre was the he was a hero of this game but it was like another one of those situational awareness type of plays yeah so a couple more Phoenix free throws Hornets take their last time out and they tried to set up a Devontae Graham three-pointer. Phoenix does a really nice job of communicating and switching. Oubre was all over Graham, forced him in, into a very difficult three. Which airballed, I believe. Yeah, and then Booker hits two more free throws. So they gave up a 12-0 run to end the game in less than a minute and and during that 12-0 run the hornets did not even touch rim they didn't you know they had that one shot by bismack biombo that got blocked and then the air ball by Devonte graham and then they had a turnover as well and gave up five points on a possession it was just an absolute disaster by them and you know that's not you don't want to put that on on any individual person because there were a lot of failures but i mean not boxing I, to me the swing one was not boxing out the free throw shooter because if if all that happens as as bad as the unnecessary as the Rozier foul on Kaminsky was if all that happens is even if he maybe he makes that free throw maybe he misses it if they just have a, a, you know, a three-point trip down the floor even with how bad the Hornets offense was they still probably win this game but making it a five-point trip is just devastating well the NBA season is in full swing if you buy some tickets on SeatGeek maybe you could see the worst loss of December as awarded by us at the end of the month but even failing that SeatGeek is an awesome place to look for live event tickets whether it's sports live music comedy and more SeatGeek aggregates ticket selling sites together so you only have to look at one place it even rates each deal on a scale of one to 10 and displays them on an interactive seat map see that big dark green dot that's a good deal red dots are overpriced so you look in the section where you want to sit hit that big green dot and you know you're getting the best deal with their trustworthy algorithms stop searching for the perfect seat just start enjoying it it doesn't have to be a 20 minute process to find 
your tickets anymore. SeatGeek has over 50,000 five-star reviews. As a result, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop with confidence. They'll even give you $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you need to do is use our promo code CAPSPACE. SeatGeek is the inaugural sponsor of this podcast over four years ago. They've been a, a great supporter and partner for us. So download the SeatGeek app today. Use promo code CAPSPACE to get $10 off on your first purchase. Once again, CAPSPACE code for $10 off your first purchase. Don't forget that CAPSPACE code. Let them know that you came from us. Okay, so we've got some time left here. Let's get back to our all-decade. We were going to do all of these yesterday and then of course as is our want we started just going crazy on executive and not executive of the decade so let's get right back to it now with our coach of the decade i think it's worth noting for me that a couple of the most successful coaches of this decade to me they didn't have a large enough sample to really win it you know they deserve deserve mention that would be brad stevens and steve kerr stevens started in the 13 14 seasons that means he missed the first four years of the window because remember it starts in 09 to 2010 that's the way the nba does it so that's the way we're doing it and steve kerr winner of coach of the most champions in the decade started in 14 15 especially because of the part of kerr just having these unbelievably talented teams though he deserves credit for maximizing the pre-durant warriors and then for you know making the durant warriors happen by making a team that's desirable to me those two guys in particular they're they're just kind of in a separate category do you agree with me sorry i was looking up steve kerr's stats what did you say again i basically said that those two guys didn't coach enough for me to be above because there are three others that i had that both did a great job and did so for the full decade so i didn't put stevens and kerr in the final grouping of top coaches you know i had four that i considered and steve kerr was among them i, I mean i and really I only had three. Steve Kerr is definitely a top three to me. I mean, won six, 76% of his game. And yeah, you can say he had some really talented teams while Mark Jackson had that same team the year before and Kerr bumped it up to one of the greatest teams of all time. And then the 73 win team, a great clutch team. Yeah, Kerr had a few foibles in the finals that lost him in game seven. Well, you know, there's plenty of other coaches who have not coached perfect games uh, at clutch times. But I mean, to win 76% of your games. And I mean, if you just look at the raw talent on that 73 win team, yeah, Steph Curry was absolutely unbelievable. Had one of the greatest seasons of all time, but Kerr unleashed him. He wasn't doing that, that type of work for Mark Jackson. Yeah, it's a nice team, but that is not even close to the most talented team of all time, in my opinion. And they still won 73 games and certainly could have won the championship. He created a system that was so good that Kevin Durant wanted to join a 73-win team and deal with all the bullshit that came with that. And he managed over those next three years to at least get the egos all on the same page maybe you give him a demerit for kd leaving a little bit that he couldn't keep kd around but it seems like that was kind of written in stone so and and i do think those teams underperformed in 17 18 and 18 19 as well in the regular season to win 58 and 57 games with the talent that they had even with the some injuries here and there but i i mean with that type of record yeah i know he only coached for five of the 10 seasons in this decade because we're starting in 09 10 but for me at least i like to default to what was your peak essentially and uh, and i value that a little bit more over longevity that's gonna be a, a bigger thing when we talk about some of the players but so uh i don't know you you, you feel differently though it seems like you're kind of putting it more on like 
total value seasons. It's both, but I think also for Kerr, there is a specific benefit to being a really good coach of talented teams. And I acknowledge that, you know, that's a part of the Phil Jackson resume and numerous other coaches, but especially during the sample size, yes, he elevated the Jackson era Warriors to another level and the 73-9 team. I don't consider this too much of a demerit, but it is worth noting that he didn't coach the team for the beginning of that year due to, due to his back issues. I mean, it's still his team and I give, I give him, you know, those wins and losses go on his thing it's his coaching staff but for me you know especially maybe it's the fine-tooth comb of making that many finals in a row but some of the system conservatism i'm going to call it that especially in the durant era of you know not running what marcus thompson called novocaine the the curry durant stuff and you know it didn't end up swinging too many series that's not why they lost to the raptors and and they won you know the finals the other two years under durant but you know you kind of saw that also in game seven in, in 20 in 16 and it's nobody's perfect but those sorts of things especially when to me the, the bigger issue with kerr and this is why i'm interested in which of my three coaches you didn't include was that the other people had really good resumes i could see in a you know in a weaker field this is kind of like a best supporting actor or actress who can win the award despite not being on the screen very much i can totally see that but to me there were three others that did really nice jobs for 10 years and so there is value to that instead of doing it for five well yeah so so who are those three for you the one that i'm guessing you don't have so i know one of them you're gonna have but the other two that i have so it's for me eric spolstra doc yeah i got him doc rivers and pop yeah so rivers is probably the one that i didn't necessarily have in there and maybe uh uh, i'm hard pressed to find a team with him other than these last two clippers teams that i felt really punched above its weight i think he's a very solid coach i like his end of game stuff I think he's a, a solid playoff coach. I do think he complains a little bit too much and that his teams maybe take on a little bit of that personality with the referees. But I, I, I just don't have him quite in that same class. Um, and I think having him over Steve Kerr, I, I can't defend that when Steve Kerr won three championships in this decade. And yeah, Doc I mean, Rivers, the, the Doc the, Rivers, yeah, I mean, he made one conference finals appearance in this decade. But part of the reason Doc Rivers made fewer ones is because they got knocked out by the Warriors and the, or like, you know, the Warriors were in the mix and, and they were a better team. I, you know, for me, the argument for Doc is sort of similar to Spo in the respect that it was a consistency. And also I gave, Doc, this is a, a weird thing with Doc, but remember, and it's fair to say this doesn't shouldn't count for coaching but one of the most memorable parts of this decade for me was doc rivers running the organization when donald sterling's whole situation went went aflame i happened to be covering a team in that series at that time but you know it's it, you know it's a it's a small thing but doc you know, I, I think also i i thought he did a good job of those celtics teams remember those count the 9 10 and 10 11 I, I, I mean well well how about this danny he was the coach for two of the biggest individual game collapses that we saw all decade maybe maybe the two worst most most bitter defeats of the whole decade game five in 2014 against okc and then game six uh, in 2015 against the rockets sure i mean but but there are there are those circumstances i mean if you if we're going to start bringing in that kind of thing there was some the, the coaching foibles in game seven in 2016 well not at the same level as it as a total collapse yeah well or, we also got to game seven of the finals <laughs> yeah but i mean got to got to game seven of the finals with the 73 and 9 team is is not exactly the same yeah and doc had his great moments you know in 2015 against the spurs i thought he really outcoached pop in that series I, I thought he did a great job last year in the playoffs too 
Oh, yeah. No, I I agree with you. I thought he really did some nice things to slow down the Warriors yeah. to some so, degree. So to me, but. to me, Doc is is third of that group, but, you know, of the, th- the three that I said. But I think he did a really nice job overall as a coach. He also was in some ways hurt by himself as the general manager. You know, that some of the groceries they bought were a little bit ill-fitting, and they had these teams that had a lot of high-end talent but didn't necessarily have the right complementary guys. And I like the way that he pivoted a little bit once they, you know, especially once they traded Chris Paul and had to had to adjust some of the scheme stuff i I liked how he handled that well so so let me ask you this just that this isn't necessarily quite the inquiry but if you had to just have someone to coach a random team right now would you rather a dockers or steve kirk i'd say you know without knowing anything about the talent yeah just any random team in the nba i i would probably go kerr but it's like 55 45 it's close for me it's really close and I, you know, it's funny. I actually might say Doc. <laughs> it, it, it depends. I mean, and both of those, you know, the Warriors defensive stuff is, is an interesting question. I mean, we're also seeing that in light of this year where they have a lot worse talent and they suck on that end. But it's, of course, a, di- a different circumstance. But yeah, I mean, Doc is, is and also he's a, a good playoff adjustment coach at, at times. I mean, you did talk about the collapses, which are totally fair to bring up. But I think we're spending a little bit too much time on that. And we should then talk about well, the, two, well, okay, the two guys so, we so, agree on. Well, last point here, just a, again, my philosophy. This came up again in the executive of the year when I picked Bob Myers. This isn't necessarily which coach at the start of this decade would you want to assign to a random team. At some point, you have to look at what the actual record was. And yeah, I get that Kerr had some great talent. But remember, I mean, you would have said after the 2014 playoffs that the Clippers had the overwhelming talent advantage over the Warriors. And Steve Kerr becoming the coach, I mean, certainly there was great growth and Draymond Green didn't really play, although that was put that on the previous coach. Uh, but Kerr certainly unlocked him as a player, unlocked Clay Thompson as a player. I mean, like those guys, without Steve Kerr, Draymond Green and Clay Thompson in particular, Particular are just never the players uh, that we uh, have come to know here the hall of fame level of players that we've come to know so i think just because he won three championships and went to two finals i mean i i don't i can't count as putting doc Rivers over him kerr was my number two actually i thought and i thought it really wasn't even close uh he was my number two spo was my number three and then of course i, I had pop number one and i, and, I mean I, I don't want to save that much time to talk about pop because it's just so obvious to me that he's number one the reason why to me what was definitive for for me for pop is that 17 18 season that's the one that always sticks with me when Kawhi 18 19 too yeah but 17 18 Kawhi barely played and I was so skeptical of their defensive personnel and we both give coaches more credit for the defensive end both as an effort and scheme perspective and that team was great on that end they were far better than I expected got Kyle Anderson paid kudos to pop for that kudos to Kyle Anderson for that and he but he, he was a just a, a fabulous coach that year the a lot of but a, a, basically Basically every year and the Spurs punched above their weight a lot defensively especially after Tim Duncan retired and while there were some playoff performances that left something to be desired at points in this also I mean the 2014 finals was was a masterstroke and there I mean there were just some some master he, he's the definitive regular season coach for me Un, no questions asked and, and he his playoff resume doesn't do much to detract from that 
Yeah, I would probably rather have Kerr as a playoff coach than him. I'd probably rather have Doc as a playoff coach than him. Spo, it's been a while since we've seen him in a playoff series with a team that really could do much damage. But two-time coach of the year. Don't forget where the Spurs were at the start of this decade, right? By the way, 09-10, and no one thought they. Everyone thought they were done as a championship contender. Tim Duncan was moving into a new phase of his career where he couldn't be the offensive centerpiece, and then all of a sudden, 2010-11, they win 61 games. Yeah, they lost in the first round. No Manu. Manu actually started that whole year and made the all-star team so certainly uh, he's played a little bit but his elbow was really jacked up 2012 they're unbelievable they win 20 straight games and then lose to okc in an upset 2016 lose to okc in an upset 2015 lose to the clippers in an upset although i actually picked the clippers in that a lot of people didn't 2017 obviously the Kawhi injury uh, i mean that was another great coaching job by the way i mean just Kawhi and kind of and lamarcus and a bunch of guys um i mean some good players but still not not a team that you would think would be winning 61 games but he's just so good in the regular season and crafted such great system and such great defenses out of talent that just did not seem like it should have been on that level great player development as well i mean i think and you consider he coached the whole decade easily had the best one loss of the decade most wins in the decade uh there's just no argument for anyone other than him to me agreed i just mentioned briefly with spo part of what i really liked about his resume and and put him over doc to me and and, and over kurt which we disagree on is that he had to coach a lot of different types of teams and he doesn't buy the groceries and so there were some some heat teams that to me punched over their weight defensively he did a really good job i mean i have issues with the 2011 finals i think that there were some tactical mistakes they made against dallas but overall in the heatles era i thought he did a very good job and then managing some really challenging injury laden situations you have the the 11 and 30 30 and 11 season where i thought he did a very good job overall and so a i think the world of spell as a coach but also just a really a really interesting and i thought significant resume over this time period yeah also mentioned rick carlisle sure absolutely 2011s might be the best postseason individual postseason coaching job but then really the Mavs were not relevant at any point later in the decade and frankly now I don't know whether Carlisle was complicit in tanking or not but certainly was not doing his greatest job by the end of the decade but certainly that 2011 postseason deserves some discussion if you had to pick the greatest one season coaching job of this decade what do you got huh I, I've got one if, if you want me to yeah sure I, I think I'd go Steve Kerr 14-15 I mean that was shocking and and yeah. to see and, and I mean to see it happen so quickly you know like it wasn't the idea of oh they're gonna adjust to the offense and everything else like that it was largely the same players and just they became a juggernaut basically overnight and I mean yeah that that Warriors team as you said was less talented than the KD teams but they were really good and yeah. fundamentally transformed from the prior year so I mean it was a, in many ways a more extreme version of uh, maybe not a more extreme version of the Budenholzer kid shift but when you consider that the Warriors were much better when at, from their jumping off point than the Bucks were it made it more startling yeah I mean 67 wins I mean it, it, we're in a different time now even than we were four years ago in terms of like resting and stuff but I mean that it takes a lot to win 67 games 67 wins NBA. which was six fewer than the next year um 
The other two I would point to, Carlisle just in 2011, just because that was such, although Pop was, I mean, regular season Pop was unbelievable in 2011 as well. And then I think 13-14 for Pop after Game 6 and Game 7 the previous year. Yeah, that's a great one. To have them get their shit together, come out, and really just be on a mission that whole 2014 season, vanquish both OKC and the Heat who had beaten them in the prior two years, and to just dominate Miami the way they did was unbelievable. All right, here we go. Worst coach. Oh, I thought you were going to say not coach of the decade. Um, But so the challenge here, I alluded to this on yesterday's podcast, is that the worst coaches generally didn't coach that long. So unlike the general managers where a lot of them had the full decade. So it is a tougher comparison to make because let's say, you know, like Earl Watson or Jacques Vaughn, I think both of them were over their (laughs) heads, but they only coached for a short period of time. So how do you weigh that? I had a real challenge with this. Wait, but actually, before you talk, can I was I, I have a worst coach of the moment deck of the worst coach of the decade moment. I'm not picking Randy Whitman for it, but Randy Whitman's clipboard flip is like the definitive not coaching moment <laughs> of the decade, and I could honestly watch that clip for the rest of my life and bring it bring me joy every second. So the rules here that I had, he had to have coached at least one full season to be eligible. Sadly, that eliminates Jim Boylan. Although the Mutiny is another great one. Kurt Rambis give you a few of his highlights from the decade coached in parts uh, of three seasons recall that he tried to implement the triangle in minnesota buried kevin love for two straight years 2009 10 15 and 67 massive improvement the following year though 17 and 65 in minnesota and this is like kevin love coming off the bench in large parts of these seasons uh trying to run the triangle which even by that time was already totally antiquated they had no offensive fulcrum they they had point guards who are out there that they're trying to develop and they're running the triangle it was just utterly terrible and then he followed that up with a a nice solid interim stint under phil jackson after Derek fisher was fired in in 15 16 a solid 9 and 19 with that group yeah, Ramis was an interesting one for me because I, I think there's a good argument that of the quote-unquote eligible coaches, he was the worst actual basketball coach. And that matters to me. I mean, you know, that that who he played and, and the structure of the team and everything else. I mean, you brought up sitting Kevin Love, but those teams were just, I mean, I've co- I covered the league then. They were just a disaster. Would you like to do a nominee? I'm interested to see how you considered J.B. Bickerstaff because I thought Bickerstaff did a pretty solid job last year on Memphis. You know, they defended better than I anticipated, but I was so frustrated with his interim jobs in Memphis and in Houston at previous points in the decade that I just wanted to mention him. He's more of like an, a, an honorable mention to me than in this, but I had trouble placing him because he did have that full season. But I mean, that Houston team was in 15-16 was, was uninspiring relative to their talent for me. And then that the Memphis 15 and 48 debacle, granted it was injury plague to be damn sure, but that team was one of the most flat that I can recall over this decade. Oh, here's one for you. Byron Scott. Oh yeah. 2010-11, 19-63. That was the post-LeBron year. He was, I remember they went after Tom Izzo. Mike Braun had just been fired in a, in a bid to keep LeBron. LeBron did not stick around. And certainly that team lost, I think, 26 straight games. Now, granted, they lost LeBron and LeBron was awesome, but they'd won 61 games the year before. They lost LeBron and they were 19-63. and 63. Yeah, they had injuries, blah, blah, blah. Well, but. Here's, here's the other thing about those Cleveland teams, because this came up with, with I was going to mention Chris Grant for not executive of the decade remember how bad cleveland had to be to get the draft assets they ended up using to get 
to, to, to have a good enough team for LeBron. Like, they had to be so damn abysmal. And Byron Scott was a big part of that. Yeah, 21 and 45, that was a 32% winning percentage, was the high watermark of the decade for him. The, the strike oh, actually, season. Oh, oh also uh, worth noting that he does actually get credit for 2009-10 when he got fired nine games into the season in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> with a three and six record uh new orleans had actually won 49 games the previous year and 56 the year before that he had, did a pretty good job uh in 2007-08 remember he, that he had started with the the nets but they had one of the worst five game playoff losses including i think they lost by like 58 against denver in the 09 playoffs and then it was uh the domino was ready to drop there and then so uh, he was fired three times in the decade actually that's well and you haven't even gotten to his final tenure yeah no oh man so so, uh then took a step back in 12 13 certainly didn't teach Kyrie irving much defense and yeah that was the uh deon waiters tristan thompson just been drafted so he gets fired after that then he goes to la he and mike braun actually like swap teams uh and i guess it was d'antoni actually in, in la but uh in any event 21 and 61 14 15 followed by 15 16 17 and 65 this was the kobe bryant swan song where kobe was just allowed to do whatever he wanted and the lakers got a a bunch of ping pong balls i remember like an nba real training camp before steve nash's final season where steve nash is just has this like nerve irritation in his leg and so byron scott is like forcing everyone to do this drill where they hold their arms above their head and just do a bunch of running at training camp like steve nash needs this at age 40 coming in and of course he then pretty much immediately succumbed to like more nerve issues and ended up having to retire it was just just such his quotes his killing guys in the media for no reason it was just all the shot distribution the pandering to kobe it was all there and it was atrocious he might be my pick actually i i still need to go through the resume he he is my pick um two others that i want to mention are one i want to mention then one of course we'll spend some time with because he's a dear friend of the pod uh jeff hornacek's resume is weird because that first year with phoenix that was one of the more successful teams to ever not make the playoffs if if you have one good year to me you're not even close to a candidate right i mean there's some the suns the suns fell up well to me the difference with hornacek is that he coached half the decade you know he actually got five full years or not five full years because he got fired as the suns coach partway through 15 16 and i really didn't like the job he did on the knicks but you could argue that those were difficult to win situations and you know as he was an early coach in the not figuring out how to use Kristaps Porzingis derby not not the first not the last but so I wanted to mention him, but he's not my pick. And then the other one that we, of course, have to discuss, considering we were calling, we were doing a podcast, a page, uh, a, actually, that, I think that was Stitcher Premium podcast, calling him the worst coach in the league at the very minute he was fired, our dear friend Jason Kidd. Now, Kidd, again, wasn't a strong contender for me because of 13-14 with Brooklyn. I exactly. thought he actually did a pretty good job. And, and they even, you know, his defensive system in Milwaukee, like they made a big improvement. Now the league eventually figured that out. They benefited from some opponent three point lock, but, uh, and certainly the way he jacked up Giannis's jumper, how much they improved after he left by getting a competent coach in there, uh, all, all that stuff. Uh, I, I mean, their defensive performances with him in the final years were criminal, but again, I can't quite put him in that level. Um, 
another guy who i think deserves to mention did coach close to three full seasons in this decade is jay triano yeah rough tenure for him too uh i think so 40 and 42 chris bosh leaves after that year in 09 10 22 and 60 in toronto after that and then the interim coach in phoenix after earl watson was fired in 17 18 but i think my recollection was that he like never coached a defense that wasn't in the bottom five and scott actually had that too i think as well where he like had five straight years of teams that weren't that didn't escape the bottom five in defense so Triano has to be in there for me. Uh, Sam Mitchell deserves uh, some mention as well. Mike Dunlap, the Bobcats coach in the 7-59 and 59 season. Jock Vaughn is up there too. But I, I think I would go Scott, Rambus, and Triano as my 1, 2, and 3. I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, he did have one massive win-loss season, though obviously their team was very good talent-wise. Did you, I mean, I just remember Vinny Del Negro as like being, you know, when Thibodeau replaced him in Chicago and then when Doc replaced him in, in the Clippers. I didn't think he's in this conversation, but I just want to mention that both of those teams got way better as soon as he was gone. Well, did they? The Clippers, 2013. The Bulls did. Yeah, the Bulls certainly did. Yeah, that, I mean, that's one where T- Tibbs obviously did, did a good job there. But uh, the Clippers, I think, actually won fewer games in Doc's first year than they had in Del Negro's final year. And yeah, I don't think Del Negro was necessarily a good coach. Certainly, like, DeAndre Jordan just, like, not playing at the end of games and, and Doc unleashing him and getting more out of him. Um, but, uh, and also, you know, they might have gotten into the second round that second year uh if Blake Griffin doesn't sprain his ankle in game five against Memphis and basically just be out of the series, they went up 2-0 in that series. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't put Del Negro in there. I mean, I don't think he deserved another job or anything, but I mean, the guy was, I think he was like well over 500 decades, kind of hard to, hard to kill him there, even despite his reputation. Yeah. I just wanted to, I just wanted to mention this guy the, the, for, for the point of discussion, but yeah, I didn't have him in my bottom either. So the way it went for me, unless you have other people to mention was I, while I thought that Rambus, there's a good argument that he was the worst coach with a sustained with a sustained enough profile to to qualify i went with scott just because of the extended period of yeah he was he was my number one also i mean five seasons best winning percentage 32 percent every other season under that what bottom five defense every year i mean that's just and just how hopeless those teams were and sure you could you could argue that their talent was bad but he was just like kind of a dick as a coach too i mean that was (laughs) like that's uh, in the media and like calling guys out like his lack of developing of young talent even with this supposed tough love approach i mean come on are you ready to do a positive category yes yeah yeah these are two positive categories these will be fun although i don't think they're going to take too long here um sixth man of the decade the category that i use is that you had to have played at least ten thousand minutes and came off the bench for more than half of the games in that ten thousand minutes uh i thought though there's one guy that just is so clearly above all the rest in this and that's manu ginobili absolutely i mean manu especially when you consider that you know lou williams has a pretty good regular season resume and remember lou williams has been in the league he played the full decade because he's been in the league forever but manu has the playoff component of this locked down and 
and a huge point, huge moments in huge games. And yeah, he's far, far and away for me, number one. I do want to give kind of two different kinds of honorable mention here. Not saying they had, they were in contention to win over Manu or even Lou Williams for number two. One is Montrez Harrell, who I could argue is the truest sixth man on the list because he only started 23 games in the decade, which is kind of amazing. And, and Harrell's been in the league for a little while now. And then the other one is JJ Barea because Barea was a, had a full decade of six man work. You know, he was, you know, Manu didn't play the whole time. He sucked in Minnesota though. Yeah, that's true. No, he was really bad. But I just wanted as, as a player who actually spent an entire decade was never like, was, was, you know, he had moments where he started, but was was there. So not in the contention for it. But I just thought those two had interesting things. And Berea was second of the six man eligible players, second in assist per, assist percentage behind Kendall Marshall of all of all players in, in in the filters that I did. But yeah, it's it's to me it's Lou Williams number two, Manu number one. Not much of an argument to me beyond that. Yeah, uh, Manu being number one, it's just it's. I mean, he is a Hall of Famer. These other guys aren't. Uh, and just had some monster seasons. His oh nine ten. 10 season at age 32 and he played all but one of the seasons in this decade too and was still pretty good by the end wasn't playing as many minutes but i mean he was just these the rest of these guys really you know are kind of off the bench score types and you know weren't sniffing championships like those type of players generally don't get to championships because they're too limited defensively Manu uh, was not limited defensively and was just the best creator best scorer just the clearly the best well, player and he fits the idea that you and I've talked about with six men of that he can close games and can be a functional part of those lineups you know like that that he and it's not just as a limited player like Manu was just he was an all-around force I mean he was one of the five best players on the Spurs how did you treat Andre Iguodala I mean I guess he's not eligible because he started really five full seasons and played more minutes in those seasons so uh yeah i didn't I, I didn't really consider him but i mean he hasn't an, an interesting resume like and especially if you were the the argument i would say one of the arguments in favor of Iguodal, not to be over manu but maybe over somebody like Lou williams is that the value he provided in the games he didn't start was incredibly high because the you know being a part of championship teams he provided a lot of value though you can also make the argument that in the playoffs he started a lot of important games and so thus those if we're using that same filter wouldn't count but he brings more playoff value than Lou Williams I had more fun with this actually than because I thought it was just so obvious um for the overall decade best individual sixth man season I ended up going with Ginobili's 2009-10 the season after that he actually made the all-star team but started the whole year it's funny that generally when he started entire years during his prime and wasn't hurt that he was making the all-star team but you know most of the seasons he's coming off the bench but I mean that's basically highest PR of anyone who realistically would be contributing and 58% true shooting back in 2009-10 that's just a completely different still a solid defensive player could do everything pass it really he was i thought just the best the highest level of play that anyone off the bench reached he also had two other seasons in contention 13 14 obviously they won the championship this year and you're, you're going to get more credit uh, obviously with this for playoff contributions certainly winning the championship that year he get, gets a lot of contribution is 12 13 another great year i mean 2013 14 age 36 season 59 percent true shooting 25 percent usage for that san antonio team i think that's really just incredible and then they actually had another guy the spurs did who was the candidate for me and that was patty mills that same season in 13 14 mills remember was ridiculous in the finals um did you do anything on this or should i just i, I didn't do much but i can mention one other one that came to mind for me and that was lamar odom in the 10 
2011 season, he came off the bench for slightly more than half the year, averaged 14, 9, and 3 for the Lakers in a, a really nice year. Yeah, and they won the championship the year before that, 09-10 as well. And you know, Andrew Bynum started, but he was closing most of the game. So yeah, I mean, he he was. Uh, that's a good one. I I that's one of the ones that didn't show up in some of the basketball reference searches. But yeah, I mean, that's got to be up there as well. And again, you know, extra credit for doing it in the playoffs. Andre Iguodala's 14-15. Yes, he did win finals MVP in part because of his work as a starter. But throughout that whole year, also exemplifies the selflessness of the role going to the bench. So Harrison Barnes could start uh, that really. Uh, and Draymond Green could start. His 15-16 obviously was awesome as well. Oh, I have one for you. Yeah. One near and dear to my own heart. James Harden, 2011-2012. Yes. And while many will lament what he did in the finals that that year from what i recall he was huge in the western conference finals against yeah. the spurs yeah he hit the the shot that put the lights out on the spurs and then his regular season i mean again this is just the level of efficiency for this point in time 66 percent true shooting and that's just completely insane another one wait, wait let is, me let me yeah. mention something with the, that 66 percent true shooting kevin durant kevin durant had 61 percent true shooting that year on yeah, granted 31 percent usage but i mean think about how durant was the most efficient thunder guy on a team with kevin durant on or, or Harden was yeah yeah sorry yeah, yeah. um a couple others isaiah thomas's 14 15 he was starting oh no actually he only started one game that year uh that was between phoenix and boston but boston you remember they took off they actually made the playoffs that year jamal crawford's 0910 that was the one year that he really really was efficient and uh, as a sixth man and that's about it but yeah that man ginobili 2009 10 uh that takes it as number one defensive player of the decade this one is really interesting because there's really only one player to me that played at a high defensive level throughout the decade you know who i got for that i'm guessing you're gonna say dwight no 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 definitely not because i mean he was basically done by by 14 15 was really like his last good defensive year yeah okay so where are you gonna go he never really even was in a defensive converse defensive player of the year conversation in any one year but al horford played at a very high defensive level basically throughout the entire decade i think that deserves some mention even though he's not gonna be my pick because i'm kind of going for those brighter suns uh but well and the brighter suns are really interesting for this like i mean for me why i brought up dwight is because dwight's beginning of this decade was phenomenal yeah and yeah. i mean we're worth remembering where we were at at the start of this i mean 9 10 10 11 11 12 he so he was a two-time defensive player of the year in this window and also won in 2009 which of course does not count rudy gobert also a two-time defensive player of the year in this window um if you want to use box score plus minus he is actually ahead of the other candidates that i have in this behind marcus camby and andrew bogut both of whom for various reasons weren't really in it also i'm not the biggest fan of defensive bpm but just wanted to mention it because it was something i looked into though i don't it more because i don't know the stat well enough to to quantify it i just wanted to mention it because i looked it up and i mean there are other ones we could talk about i mean noah's peak was great tim duncan's peak you know even though this wasn't yeah the best of his career i mean yeah i, I yeah I, I like noah i mean he only he basically was done after the first five years of the decade but those first five but, years are good enough to put him in the conversation yeah. kind of like 09 10 he wasn't quite at the level that was the the before tibbs but yeah the, those four years under tibbs definitely uh, deserves to mention another guy actually who i think played at a pretty high level throughout most of the decade his consistency is marcus soul yeah absolutely one one uh, defensive player of the year as well yeah 2013 
Um, and I think at some point in the future, me will do like a all defensive team for the decade. Another guy who, yeah, he was done by 2016, but Kevin Garnett mm-hmm. still, it wasn't his best defensive decade, but was still, even by the end, was still really a positive defensive player. He was like getting these teams to defend, playing next to like rookie Carl Anthony Towns. Um, so, uh, Gobert, you know, might have been the best regular season player of the second half of the decade, starting in, you know, second half of 14 15 is really when he came into his own. Draymond Green had a couple of years where he basically didn't play, but then the last five years of the decade, fantastic, and also made the finals all five of those years. Probably delivered the most playoff value of any defensive player this decade. So that definitely has to be a consideration, even if he only played five seasons. Well, but again, and, they're and that's they're why just, that's why yeah. he's my number one. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, totally defensible. The the value added of being a definitive defensive player in the playoffs is 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 crazy and i mean being able to affect opponents especially in some ways in the earlier rounds i mean there were some of those teams where he was able to stifle it i mean i thought draymond did a wonderful job in particular like one of just a random one to mention against the blazers last year in the western conference finals like you know he had some really good performances you could go to various series i think back to the grizzly series in 2015 where they put him on tony allen and that just yeah. basically uh, some of that was bogut too but then they then they put yeah. green on him as well yeah and green on uh green on rondo in the yeah. i think that was the 17 or 18 whichever one yeah. that was and also just his versatility to unlock that lineup that was so good offensively but could still might have even been better defensively um yeah so uh, now tyson chandler deserves some credit for the early sure. part of the decade serge ibaka another player who again didn't have that peak but was pretty consistent throughout the decade uh at uh tony allen certainly now as you get into the wing players and actually anthony davis probably needs to be mentioned as well here but still just you know wasn't doing it in the playoffs wasn't consistent enough and had a couple of disappointing years though it wasn't yeah. really his fault in new orleans at, at at times like those teams were just ravaged by injury so were you just like not willing to consider the wings because the wings definitely had more no i consider no i consider the wings i mean for for me if Kawhi had had a different kind of a different lap yeah. like, at different moments it, it would have been- i went with Kawhi, actually. Okay, I mean, there, he, there's he a totally reasonable one. argument there. I mean, for me, if he hadn't missed the 17-18 season, basically, and then, I mean, another, you know, it'd be huge playoff defensive performances, Yeah, to be but sure. he, he still had a lot more of a resume than Draymond. In the early part of the decade? I mean, as soon as, because right when he came in, he was really helping. You know, he was part of those great Spurs defenses early on, uh, and then even as late as 19, he wasn't at his best, but to shut down Giannis in the East Finals last year um, as well. So, I mean, he, I thought Draymond, because he only had five seasons, and Howard too, I mean, he... Yeah, Howard Howard was my number two. Yeah, I I think that that's totally reasonable. I mean, and you wonder how much can a wing really have done um so but, i mean but it, it is just, true that one of the definitive player of this decade was a wing and Kawhi did a pretty good job on him at moments of time yeah andrew godala paul george also deserving some mention here for their longevity and, and it's interesting we we could just i don't think he deserves heavy consideration but the best lebron years were among the best wing defensive years too yeah but then he yes. added a lot of negative value exactly and that's why that. he's not a consideration but i did right. want to mention that prime lebron was awesome yeah uh, totally uh best defense 
offensive season, Oof. I would probably have to say Dwight Howard's 0910. Yeah, that was that my choice was too. A really nasty Magic team. And hit the level of versatility that he had at his peak. I mean, it was just absolutely insane. I mean, uh, this was that was a great Magic defense, and it was basically just him. <laughs> like, it was it, it was pretty incredible. Uh, the other one I would say is Draymond's 1516. That would be my other. Uh, especially just that like his clutch defensive play well yeah i mean remember that 15 16 team had so many comebacks that sure you can focus on the explosive offense but if they were worse defensively with the what was the death lineup then they wouldn't have been able to do it all right last one here best rookie season i had five candidates here and um i'm not going to go through all the stats of them but i just want to rattle them out and you can tell me if i missed anybody i'm not you know i'm not saying they're all equal and i'm not saying anything like that but the five that i most seriously considered an underrated one for me because of his defensive value and it's funny this came up on the nba cast tonight ben simmons in 17 18 yeah um luca last year 18 19 it's amazing considering how how well he's done this year and how much of an improvement anthony davis in 12 13 blake griffin in 10 11 and carl anthony towns in 15 16 i think you gotta throw Kyrie's rookie sure. year in that's, there that's totally well. fine he was he was he was somebody i considered um, but didn't have in that top five yeah uh being on a winning team there's not many of these guys who are on winning teams by the way he only played what was it 700 minutes in his rookie year but if you had to say who is the best rookie on a per minute basis i'd say it was joel and beat yeah i would i would agree that's why i picked him for rookie of the year over brogdon that year yeah um i ultimately went with blake griffin in 2010-11 because it was just that was the rookie season where it was just oh man we've never seen anything like this before just uh, like the level of excitement that he was providing and he got to be a really good player really early they had no one else on that team at the time but he was good enough that the next year he was able to be uh, on a, a very good 50 win type of team um so he would be my number one who was your number one i was torn between to me there was a, a separation oh less very faint one but for me i had towns and blake above anthony davis that was kind of my my line of division part of it was that eight that ad season you know like the, the, they didn't have the defensive part of it yet that kind of i think that came the next year where he really started to step up but i went with towns over griffin which might be unfair because i think part of the reason why i went with towns is that he was more efficient but remember how much the league changed but i think for sure. me what towns what towns showed off offensively and not like kind of do it all you know more the passing and shooting and especially considering at that point he was constrained somewhat by the system that he was in i i for me that town season as much as i loved blake's year it was since he did it at the five like it was i was just saying like oh my god like what is this guy going to be and also some of his defensive foibles and you could argue that this is kind of unfair to use they were masked a little bit by some of his teammates so i didn't think you know he he wasn't to me it wasn't as bad defensively as we would see in some later years i remember it kind of being a little bit papered over but you know it was okay Kyrie Irving, 2011-12, usage, 57% true shooting in a down year for off. And certainly questions would emerge later. I mean, he basically statistically didn't improve at all for like three years after that. But man, like that, that first year, you're like, oh my God, like this. I mean, he had better stats than like most, uh, pretty much any of these guys in his rookie year. And that's forgotten about now, perhaps. He, he wasn't on the same trajectory. I mean, for any of those as a 19 year old rookie too I and mean, we're, we're looking at who created the most value obviously but that was really really impressive so he was my number two i also wanted to mention Kawhi leonard and jason tatum in this because of uh, what they did in the playoffs now Kawhi was not the same guy he was certainly part of that spurs machine but he was only 15 percent usage that year definitely a, a support player but was an awesome three and d guy and jason tatum 
in the his rookie year 17 18 he had a ridiculous playoffs uh once Kyrie Irving went down but I guess my number three whew, probably I go with Luca um Towns was really impressive but I defensively and, and there's hope more hope for him defensively that year but uh Luca just edges him out for me hopefully that's not too colored by what he's done this year all right anything else to say on this one no I think that's about it all right uh let's get out of here you need to plug anything before we go uh not quite I have, I have a few pieces in the works for the athletic but they're not all the way published yet so I'll talk about those the next time we talk all right, no show tomorrow, but that's because we're going to be getting ready with the 15 and 60 later this week. And don't forget about Hollinger and Duncan. That is out as well. We had really interesting conversation talking about some of the underrated stories this season. Undercovered, I should say. Talk to you all soon. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.